At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 456th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who brings the whole system approach of design and nature to her farm. We're talking with Raven Venturelli on permaculture on the small farm. Raven is a small farmer and activist for environmental and social justice. She has been studying permaculture design for 10 years and manages Blue Apple Farm in Cornville, Arizona. She is on the board of the Sedona-based nonprofit Gardens for Humanity, on the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance teaching team, and runs the Verde Valley Seed Library. Welcome to the show today, Raven. Are you ready to rock permaculture? I am, Greg. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. I really want to live in a world where the water is more pure with every subsequent year and the air is more clean and the soil is more diverse. And so that's really my passion and what pushes me to do what I do. I also have a great passion for seed sovereignty and food security. So all of those things combined with a background in permaculture design have really led me to um, chasing my dream of being a small farmer. And I chased that to Cornville, Arizona, which wasn't what I expected, but I'm really happy to be here. Nice. So permaculture, that's, that's the, what we used for decades used to call the P word, and now it's uh, much more widely accepted and known about. In fact, when I started talking about permaculture 30 years ago here in Phoenix, nobody knew what it was. Now about 50% of the people know. So yay. Yeah. How did you find out about permaculture and where did you take your training at? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles or in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And um, in my early 20s, I was 23 when I took my PDC with Larry Santoyo and oh, Earthflow Design. Love Larry. Are you a student of Larry as well, right? I, I am. Yep. So he was in L.A. He was really the prominent permaculture design instructor, and I, I believe still is for that area. And I signed up for a six-month design course with my parents, Jody and Angelo. All three of us took the course together, which was really quite wonderful because, you know, it's so much information. So being able to go home and decompress and talk about these things at the end of the weekend was, was really huge for all of us. And for me, it was being 23, I was just sort of ripe for that information, and it really did change my life. Not to be over dramatic, but it it had a huge impact on my life. It still does. 
and really gave me a perspective shift of how to be in the world and not just have this very humanistic, industrialized worldview, which I was raised in. We were all we all were raised in. Mm-hmm. So it was a great gift for me to have kind of the boundaries shattered a little bit and that really started my own integration into the natural world. So when I discovered permaculture and did my permaculture design course, it was nineteen ninety one. And for me, the realization was, oh my gosh, there's actually something that I can call this because I knew down to my toes that there was something different. Yeah. Tell me about your experience around that. Growing up in Los Angeles or the broader LA County area, you know, you're really engulfed in Hollywood. You're really engulfed in the car culture. If anybody hasn't been to Los Angeles, there actually are a lot of trees there. But you're, re- you know, you're in the concrete jungle. And my background was in music. I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston out of high school and had just really come back to L.A. and was kind of searching for what it all meant, you know. Here I am in my early 20s, and everybody's like, what are you going to do with your life? And I'm looking around at this really insane culture and insane world going, uh, I don't really know. And so when I took that course, it kind of gave me a pathway to leave things better than I found them, mm-hmm. to, to really understand that we can't just keep taking and not giving back. And I think humans understand that on like an interpersonal human level, but we don't, unfortunately, we don't apply that to the natural world. Well, of course, because we think we're, we know how to do it better than nature. Yes. Which is debatable. <laughs> well, I, there's no debate here for me, man. Toby, Absolutely. Toby Hemingway, when he was alive, he used to always say, nature always bats last, and I fully believe that. Absolutely. I think that's Guy McPherson's website, too, if you're familiar with his work. I'm not. Nature, nature bats last. Wow, cool. So I always ask my permaculture trainees, trained, the people that have taken permaculture courses, Define permaculture for us, would you, for those people that don't know what it is? Sure. My definition of permaculture, and I I have no doubt that many other people have said this, but I view permaculture as a philosophy or a really a holistic design methodology that's based on the patterns, principles, and relationships observable in the natural world. Nice. And my number one rule about permaculture is observe. Stand back and pay attention to what's going on around you. Yes. You run a small farm and how did you get there? Because I know that, in fact, I just had a call yesterday from a young gentleman, you know who you are if you're listening, that he's, he's trying to navigate from living in an apartment to actually having a farm. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did you get there? I think one of the big challenges for young people who want to get into farming is access to land and and money. So before I moved to Cornville, I was living in San Luis Obispo County, California, which is like in the central coast, 
about an hour or so north of Santa Barbara. And it's wine country. It's very expensive. It's gorgeous. But I was having a real problem getting access access to land or really being able to implement what I, what I had learned with permaculture mm-hmm. and how I wanted to farm. So my parents had moved to Cornville in July of 2016, and they bought an acre, and they basically offered it to me, which at first I was like, no, I'm not moving to where do you live in Arizona, <laughs> you know? Right. And then just kind of, I have worked on a lot of farms and was trying to get something in alignment and feeling like if I stayed in California, not only did I not have the money to really purchase property, cost of living is high, if I'm leasing or renting, or the available land was just really not good. Soil wasn't good, water was scarce, maybe I was in fire country. So I finally kind of came to my senses and said, you know what, this is an opportunity to manage a farm the way I think it should be managed, do my own trial and error, make my own decisions, and ultimately a property that is going to be mine eventually because it's in the family. So I just decided that now is the best time to start. I think most permaculture designers really have at least a five- or ten-year design plan And it's hard to do that if you're renting or leasing. Certainly if you're just running annual vegetables, maybe that's a little bit different. And I would never deter anybody from leasing some land just to get started. But given kind of the bigger picture of what I was trying to accomplish, I packed up all my stuff and moved to Cornville. Nice. Well, and, you know, Bill and Belle from Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance uh, who is, you know, Bell, uh, Bill and I do the monthly seed chat and we've done seed school with them online and we do the Great American Seed Up. So I've spent some time in Cornville and Cornville's a, let's not tell anybody, but it's a beautiful place. Well, you just told everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It's in the heart of the Arizona Green Belt, about 20, 30 minutes south of Sedona. It is. It's a really beautiful place. It's got great soil, fresh air, clean water these sort of really important things that unfortunately we take for granted. Yeah. And the cool thing that, so I actually was on a consulting gig late last year up there on some land in the Cornville Verde Valley area. And what I discovered was how much food you can actually grow there. It's, it's easier to grow there because it's not so hot. Yes. And the Verde Valley area could be the bread basket of the state. It should be, and and I have no doubt that it was, you know, pre-industrial agriculture or even just, you know, 75 years ago or Mm -hmm. so. Wow. So tell me about your farm. I drive up the driveway and I arrive there. What am I going to see? As you come into the property, you are going to see some ginormous thuljas and Arizona cypress and mesquites. I am eternally grateful for previous owners of this property who planted trees and really put in some solid, solid bones on the property. Yeah, You would see my nursery low tunnels that are full of plant babies. You would see a little kitchen garden in the front that's full of right now flowers and wheat. And as you walked 
through the property. The market garden encompasses about the back quarter acre, then wraps around on the west side to an orchard. We have about 40 fruit and nut trees. I think eight to 10 were already here on the property. Uh And when, when my parents bought the property, they planted more trees. I got here about a year later. I moved here in late June of 2017. Mm-hmm. And I spent about six months just observing and throwing seeds out, planting stuff. It doesn't freeze till Halloween at the earliest, so I knew if I got here by July, I still had about 90 days of a growing season to work with. So I didn't launch right into the farm right away, but I spent those first six months really walking the property every day and trying to imagine where things go and what I was going to focus on to start growing. And then I had a couple interns, Gary and Lena, who were here for about three months at the very beginning of 2018. And they were instrumental in doing some big projects. Like the whole property was irrigated like a golf course when I got here. Oh, wow. Um, So that needed to be changed out and beds needed to be built, soil needed to be prepped. So we got a whole lot done in about 90 or 100 days that they were here. And I've just been plugging away since then. I didn't try to start too big too soon. We just keep adding more beds. I got some summer stuff in. And then while that was running, I put in some beds that would be planted for fall And then when those were up and running, I've got more beds in to be planted for winter. And, you know, it goes on and goes on. The market garden is still evolving. It's not at its capacity yet, Uh but we do all sorts of stuff. I have hugel culture beds. If you're familiar with Sepp Holzer and his work, I have raised beds. I have in-ground beds. I just run the whole gamut, have herbs under the trees. And we tried to keep bees Unfortunately, the bees got robbed, or at least this is what I believe happened. Mm -hmm. Robber bees came in, and then my bees just basically turned into wild bees, which is okay. Yeah. Can't do it all. Not at first. No, you can't. No, you can't do it all. The bees are actually a a friend of mine's, so I wasn't trying to be a beekeeper. I was just providing space for for her hives. Wow. So how did you learn how to do all of this? Well, I worked on a number of farms in California. And then, interestingly, when I got into farming and then I ran into all of these hurdles of getting access to land, one of my sort of breakthrough moments was when I stopped and I asked myself, okay, so even if you did have access to land, what would you do with it? And and that was a really good question for me to ask. And that led me to seed because in permaculture design, I don't know if Larry, surely Larry said, we work high in the watershed, whether that's literal or metaphorical. Both. And so when I kind of dialed in on the importance of seed and the role that I expected seed to play on my farm, my future farm, things started really dialing in for me. So I went online and I was looking for resources around seed farming. And I found that the Organic Seed Alliance, based out of the Pacific Northwest, 
has an intern program to connect aspiring seed farmers to existing seed farmers wow. so that there can be a knowledge transfer there. And I found out about that program pretty much immediately after I had asked myself, well, what would you even do with land if you had access to it? And probably six weeks later, I landed in Polson, Montana on Fresh Fruits Farm with Carl Sutton and his wife, Darcy Jones, and I spent about three and a half months in Montana working on their five-acre farm, which was mixed production. They sold at the co-op in Missoula and sold to restaurants and did the farmer's market, and then they also grew seed on contract for Fedco and maybe high mowing. And then Carl was also part of the Triple Divide Seed Co-op, which is a group of Western Montana farmers who pool all their seed together and, and packet it and, and sell it to the local community. Wow. So I really got a crash course. You know, when you are working 40, 50 hours a week, on a farm like that with certified organic, you can't help but learn. And I really treated it like farm school. I was like, okay, I'm going to farm school. I got paid. Nobody had ever paid me to go to school before. So that was really <laughs> nice. my perspective that right. I took into it. And I, I learned a ton. So Along with that, just reading, you know, I read Jean-Martin Fortier's Market Gardener book while I was there, read Elliot Coleman's books, watching YouTube videos. I mean, all of that is important. Nothing really, the, the books don't really add up to the hands-on training. Right. I, I just don't think that's replaceable. And then trying to farm where you are because, of course, western Montana and the foothills of the Rocky Mountains is very different than here. But there's a whole lot of really foundational information that is applicable no matter where you are. Right. Wow. So you just jumped in and decided this is what I want to do with my life and learned. Yeah. I think I'd really gotten to a point in my own study of permaculture where I was like, okay, I'm either starting a landscaping business or trying to start a small farm. And the small farm was way more appealing to me. And so that's what I really put my energy behind. Awesome. Well, and it sounds like a huge gift that your parents have an acre. Oh, so, so much. It's funny here in Cornville, I tell people I'm a small farmer and everybody says, oh, how much acreage are you farming? Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like we've lost this sort of concept of the small farm and it's just everybody's idea of farming is industrial ag. And that's really unfortunate mm -hmm. because I think we know that small farmers really produce the majority of food on the planet. Most of the industrialized produce that's grown is thrown away or, you know, rots in the field, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we have way more efficient ways to grow food, and we need our food to be localized, and we need sovereignty over our seed because that's the ultimate in food security. Oh, amen to that. That is for sure. And I, I also get that. You know, I say I'm Greg Peterson with the Urban Farm, and often we'll, people will say, well, how many acres do you have? <laughs> right. 
I have a third I of an acre. I don't think any of those people have ever managed even a quarter acre market garden because you can grow a lot of food and and you know they just we're so disconnected from our food that yeah. that you know people just yeah they they can't make those connections. How did you come about? figuring out what to do with your produce and then what do you do with it? We have a Cornville Farmer's Market. That's every Monday and it runs for the majority of the year, unlike some of the other local farmer's markets here in the Verde Valley that don't run quite as long or kind of stop and start with the monsoon season. So I knew I had an outlet in the Cornville Market and that is basically what I have designed and geared the market garden towards. I mean, we're just finishing our first year of production. So that's what I do. I do one market. Through the market, I've met people in the community who come and and buy farm direct. And then also through the market, I've met a chef who works at Enchantment, which is this sort of schwanky resort in Sedona. Uh So that's the bulk of my sales right now is I just do one weekly market and I sell to this chef. And occasionally I have people come to the farm because they can't make the market. Right. Well, that was always one of my favorite ways in because I market farmed in 99 to about 2004 while I was going to ASU. And one one of the things that I did is I found three or four chefs Mm -hmm. and I asked them what they wanted to me to grow. Yeah. Um, And then I had one chef uh, owned a restaurant here in Phoenix that she just basically took whatever I had left over after I went to the market. So I'd get up early in the morning. I'd harvest the stuff out of the yard. I'd go to the market. I'd sell what I had. Anything I had left over went to Susan at the Calico Cow and she would feed me lunch. Yeah. (laughs) Good deal. Good deal. (laughs) Yeah. So how has that worked for you? Are you getting to a place of being able to make a living doing this? I think we're moving in that direction and actually it's, it's happening a little faster than I expected. Our first year, or excuse me, our first season, we launched last summer, summer of 2018, mm-hmm. and ran into all the problems, all the bugs, the javelina ripping down our fences and ate my squash, ate my corn, ate my potatoes. You know, they were probably the greatest appreciators of Blue Apple Farm. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. But everybody's got to eat, right? Yep. So, so we definitely started slowly. And I think, you know, a farm is a business. And you, any other business that somebody would try to launch, you would expect to, yeah, have some struggles in the beginning, and and we most certainly did. So, you know, at first it was like, oh, wow, we're making 50 bucks at the farmer's market. And it can be a little disheartening for how much labor and energy you're putting into it. But we kind of bounced back in the fall and had a good winter and have had a good spring. So I think people are getting to know me and getting to know the family and we've had a couple events on the farm, which really oh, nice. attracts people to it. People love to come and visit, want to do a farm tour. Mm-hmm. And we also do, you know, I have a diverse farm. I'm not just putting all my eggs in the produce basket. We do cut flowers. I have plant starts. So many people in Cornville homestead or have pretty significant gardens so I'm not selling seed. I'm not licensed to sell seed, but 
I share seed with people, trade seed, and mostly I save seed for my own market garden, and then I sell plant starts at the market and, and farm direct. And so that feels like it's a good, balanced farm plan slash business plan that I'm excited to continue pushing forward as the market garden expands and evolves and grows. It certainly has its limits. And are your fruit trees producing yet? Yeah, so the fruit trees that were already on the property, there's an apricot, a couple plums, an Italian plum, peach, two pears, and a cherry Mm -hmm. that are all, you know, unfortunately, I don't really know. They've got to be at least eight or ten years old. And yes, they, they do produce. And then we've added persimmons, pomegranates, pecans, almonds. I have almonds on our laundry to landscape gray water system nice so many of the trees are young and they're not fully producing yet but they will be in the years to come excellent and and i take it you're taking that produce to the market yes and one of the one of the things that i noticed when i was going to market was that if i missed a week or two my sales would drop dramatically because people really came to count on me being there Every Saturday or every Wednesday. Have you found that? In a way, yes, I have found that. Although it's kind of a double-edged sword because if you miss a week, sometimes my sales are are better because Mm. people are like, well, where were you? You know, and I really missed that, those fresh onions, or I really missed your spinach. I grew amazing spinach in the winter and everybody would walk away like Popeye with this big, like one pound (laughs) bag of spinach under their arm. And it just made me smile. But yes, I think consistency, like any business, you got to know your market. And one of the benefits of being a small farmer in Cornville is that we live in a complete and utter food desert other than the weekly farmer's market, of which I'm really the only person there consistently with a diverse, fresh produce. Mm -hmm. There's microgreens, and in the summer, some of the vendors will, say, get overage tomatoes or something from a farm in Camp Verde, and they'll bring them up and sell them at the market. But it's pretty inconsistent. And other than that, Cornvillians, as I call us, need to go to Cottonwood Camp Verde or Sedona just to go to like your quote supermarket to buy fresh produce. So all we have in Cornville are little, you know, liquor stores or mini marts, kind of the equivalent of a 7-Eleven, which is full of processed food. And then they have a couple apples and bananas on the counter, you know? So I would say, I know you didn't ask this question, but if anybody wants to be a farmer and they have the ability to move, you know, go somewhere where there's no food being produced because, (laughs) you know, there's a niche to be filled there. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important one. Of course, in Arizona, there's a large elderly population and maybe they don't drive anymore or I don't know, but they have to travel at least 10 miles, 8, 10 miles just to get, you know lettuce or a, a tomato or any anything really so i think that the more people growing food in these food deserts we really make a difference and you know 
the farmer's market has turned into like farmer appreciation day, That's you know, nice. yeah. where at first I was like, Oh, I'm going to go sit there and make 20 bucks. And you know, now the table is busy and we're just at the end of our first year of production. So, you know, everybody eats and those communities where f- fresh food is not readily available they're the places that that need farms and need farmers markets and and you know just being able to talk to your farmer is huge that's huge that is huge so the cornville farmers market is on mondays it's all year around right it's march through december oh oh very good uh, so check out the Cornville. If you get to Cornville, check out the Cornville Farmers Market on Monday. Absolutely, from two p.m. till dusk. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Well, <laughs> I I think farming is just an exercise in failing gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, this whole year has been just you know, one challenge and one failure after another and certainly successes mixed in. But mostly, I think, remaining adaptable, always being willing to redesign and rethink things and and treating failures as great opportunities for growth is kind of the best thing you can do in whatever failure that hits you. It's a, it's a learning opportunity. None of us get it right the first time. And as a small farmer, I, I couldn't count on one hand how many things like, like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or, wow, I thought that would work and it didn't. Or, oh, the javelina just ate all my corn again, you know. And your takeaway? My takeaway is to keep going, to observe and interact to cut yourself some slack and keep trying. Awesome. And what do you consider your biggest success? Going to the Cornville Farmer's Market and having it be Farmer Appreciation Day. (laughs) (laughs) With one farmer there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, there's a few more farmers, but they don't have have quite as consistent produce. Or, you know, they have microgreens and things, Mm -hmm. but... Definitely seeing the community act and interact with the farm and, you know, asking me what I'm growing, starting to get people more in tune to seasonal food, I think has been a huge just success. Like it feels good to me personally, when instead of people coming up and asking me for summer squash in April, now they're saying, oh, you know, when do you think this will be ready? Or, oh, you have to dry and cure your garlic. And, you know, it's just sort of educating people mm-hmm. and getting getting people to take steps to reconnect with their food. Because everybody eats and everybody needs to eat, human or not human. And food has a great ability to cross cultures, which I think is a wonderful thing. Oh, yes. Too. And what drives you? Clean water and clean air and six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. I just want to leave this place better than I found it. I'm, you know, privileged and blessed to have this opportunity here. It's a really supportive 
family. I just believe that all species deserve their fair share of nutrition and habitat and life. And unfortunately, we were in a culture where that's not really valued. And there's no doubt that there's a lot of people who do value that. It's challenging to navigate our culture in this time yeah. and hold, you know, what is what is important to me, hold that up high and really try to honor it and be thankful and and be a part of the farm. Like like sometimes I think I don't manage the farm, the farm manages me. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's true to a certain extent, but you know, I am just one member of the biological community on the farm, you know, me and the ladybugs, me and the aphids, me and the cucumbers, whatever it is, me and the javelina, the expletive javelina, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's all, that's, that's what drives me of, you know, that's have, beautiful. having clean, beautiful spaces that honor the natural world and, you know, meeting other people that, that share those, those values. Yeah. Beautiful. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Stay, staying on this theme, I would say a really, it sounds heavy, but it's actually a really enjoyable book to read. It's called The Myth of Human Supremacy by Derek Jensen. And I love that book. And in some ways, he just, in many ways, he debunks all of the weird things like brain size or opposable thumbs that, that we think, oh, well, we're so advanced because, you know, we can fly around in airplanes or helicopters or mm-hmm. braid hair. And, you know, on the other hand, it's like, well, plants eat light and they don't have brains, but they operate like a brain. So how smart are we if we're the ones really destroying ecosystems and destroying habitat, which ultimately is detrimental to us and everything else. So I think it's a great book to sort of put things in perspective as far as how advanced we really are or aren't arguably are not. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The Myth of Human Supremacy. I've not heard of that one before. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, by Derek Jensen. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? My advice would be to, if you want to, and I hope that you do, do whatever you, whatever speaks to you to reintegrate yourself into the natural world and whatever that means to you as an individual. And if, if nothing else, please just acknowledge that the natural world is sentient and mindful and alive and my life has been so much more for the better since I realized that and I started really appreciating the natural world, understanding that humans are not separate from the natural world, understanding that we don't necessarily have it all figured out. And we have many, you know, advancements that we could point to. But there's some really fundamental things that I think we're missing. You know, like Bill Mollison said, probably his most famous quote, you know, though our problems are 
intense and elaborate, I'm paraphrasing, you know, the solutions are um, embarrassingly simple. <laughs> and, right. and they are. And so I think, how can we find those embarrassingly simple solutions and, and really start integrating them and acting on them? Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Raven. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Greg. It was fun. Oh, man, was it ever. And how can, <laughs> our, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Uh, they can email me at blueapplefarmaz at gmail.com. You can follow the farm on Facebook. It's in French, so don't be, <laughs> don't be intimidated. But the farm is Le Ferme Pomme Bleu, which is Blue Apple Farm in French. I'm very inspired by the Parisian market gardeners of the late 1800s. I feel like if they can do it, anybody can yeah, do you, it. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash blue apple farm. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.